Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Film, a podcast on the New, Book Net, New Books Network. I am Bill Schaefer, your host for today's podcast. I am talking today to Professor Robert Pippin, author of Film Thought, a work in the philosophy of film, published in 2020 by the University of Chicago Press. Pippin is a philosopher known principally for his work in the area of German idealism, particularly Hegel, although he has previously published widely in film philosophy, including the Western genre, Film Noir and Hitchcock. I should point out that Professor Pippin is currently ensconced somewhere in the depths of a forest and that he is talking with me today over a landline which will have implications for the sound quality of this podcast. So now to my introduction to uh, the book we are discussing today, Film Thought. Each chapter in Film Thought treats a film in depth, including works by Hitchcock, Ray, two films apiece for these first two, Malik, Cirque, Almodovar, Polanski and the Dardenne brothers. Although the book does engage with a number of philosophical concepts, particularly from the work of Hegel and Cavell, I imagine many readers will be relieved to find that it does not treat the films it addresses as mere illustrations of ideas already stated in propositional form. It does not take the form of this scenario illustrates Descartes' evil demon or this one is an example of the trolley problem. Instead, Pippin's gambit is to treat films themselves as forms of thought in their own right. He is interested at least as much in questions of expression, the non-propositional ways in which films present their worlds and ideas using camera movements, the dynamics of sound, mise-en-scene, and so on, as in correlating them with conclusions already formed within philosophy. For me, this gives his writings the feeling of a genuine engagement with the potentialities of the cinema, rather than an assertion of superior knowledge. The phrase that came into my head as I read Film Thought, with apologies to Spinoza, was, we do not know what a film can do. The ideas explored in Film Thought address such questions as the limits of moral judgment, the dimensions of cinematic irony, the critical possibilities of genre films, and the intriguing problem of unknowingness. I found Film Thought consistently provocative, and inspiring for my own work in film studies, and a constant pleasure to read. Robert Pippin, welcome to New Books in Film. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book that moves between the the worlds of film and philosophy. Uh, Well, uh, thank you for inviting me to do this, Bill. Um, I uh, I don't know that I have a kind of coherent narrative of how I came to... uh, start publishing about film. Um, I wrote a book in 2000 on Henry James, on uh, Henry James and Modern Moral Life, about uh, different aspects of moral experience that emerged in the late 19th and early 20th century that James, I thought, was particularly sensitive to more than more than the philosophers who were writing at that period. Um, and it started to convince me that um, there were other modalities of philosophy besides academic, discursive, analytic philosophy. Uh, you know, I spent most of my career working in that area, in, 
in the history of philosophy sort of subsection of mainstream academic or professional uh, philosophy. But <clears throat> philosophy, one of the things Cavell convinced me of was that philosophy is uh, something that goes on everywhere in every human life, uh, more or less well, uh, more or less clearly. But nevertheless, it's a, a part of what it is to be alive. Uh, and I thought there must be some way uh, of presenting uh, the, the modality in which philosophy arises in everyday life that isn't um, a simplification or a popularization or uh, some kind of uh, just generally watered-down version of what happens in that. That requires a different language of accessibility than we're used to in academic philosophy. So I, I received an invitation um, a few years after the James book to deliver a series of lectures on political thought at Yale University. And the only academic purchase I have in those issues is through the, the thought of people like Kant and Hegel and, and Marx. And, and it just seemed to me that for a general audience, so to say for not a colloquium audience for philosophy professors, but for a large humanities audience at the Yale Humanities, which is a, a, a famous center, the Whitney Humanities Center, that um, it, that would be inappropriate. So I, I thought I, I'd always been interested in the concept of uh, political psychology, that is to say, uh, why human beings are willing to accept the authority of the state's monopoly on coercive violence. And it occurred to me that it had nothing to do with the acceptance of very subtle arguments about the legitimacy of state power based on, you know, contractualist arguments or veil of ignorance arguments, all of the things that are, are quite common in uh, political philosophy for the last hundred years. And I'm sort of more interested in what could uh, influence the psychological dynamics that would lead people uh, to be willing to sacrifice for a regime, and that means for people who are essentially strangers, but whose only relation to them um, is the relation of citizenship. And it occurred to me that um, the great Westerns of the classic Hollywood period, especially by John Ford and Howard Hawks, were good examples of explorations of that psychological dynamic issue that wasn't really acceptable, uh, accessible in the traditional philosophical terms. Um, you, you don't really know what it is in a life to be moved to accept something that we don't really have the kind of kind of full discursive rational argument for. Um, nobody does when they when they uh, uh, you know sign up to go to war or are willing to accept a higher level of taxation, whatever. So I began watching these westerns with the idea that I could give a lecture on what I was interested in in European philosophy, especially Rousseau and post-Rousseauian ways of highlighting uh, this issue of political psychology. So uh, after I delivered these lectures, I mean, yeah, I, I have to admit that they weren't terribly, I, I, what, what would be the word, thrilled, that I was going to deliver these very prestigious lectures about what were considered at the time cowboy pictures. Mm. And I, I, I told them, you know, just, uh, you know, relax. I, I think I can say something interesting about these things that you'll be happy with. And it worked out very well. I mean, uh, the discussions after the films were very good. Um, the Yale University Press, which had contracted to publish the lectures, was very happy with them. 
and they were it, it did very well. The book uh, it was it was well reviewed, and there was a generally positive response to it. Um, so I thought, well, if I have to deliver another public series of lectures, that that's what I'll do. And a couple of years later, I got um, another invitation to give a, a series of lectures um, at the University of Virginia. Um, also, uh, you know, supposedly about philosophical topics, but I, I was really quite interested in the way film noir um, in the 1940s, especially, uh, had a number of things to say about what philosophers were interested in um, with respect to the topic of agency. So, anyway, I, I started feeling that uh, there was a modality of philosophical reflection both in film and in commentary on film that could engage an audience that wasn't a philosophically specialized audience. And that turned out to be true. Um, without, as I say, a vulgarization or simplification, um, and it, it struck me that that might be a modality, a way of talking about philosophy, both in literature and in film, uh, that might be worth exploring. So I, I just kept doing it. Right. Um, I have read your book on the Western, not the one on film noir yet, and um, yeah, I think it's true that you, you get a very strong sense that you're neither simplifying the philosophy nor the films. You're not talking down to the films, um, and, and that, that seems like a real achievement for me, to me. Um, oh, good. Yeah, that's what I was aiming at. Yeah, I imagine that, that your books are of interest as much to cinephiles or filmmakers or film scholars as they are to professional philosophers. Well, there is a difference. I mean, uh, there is a kind of resistance. A, a, a typical film review by a non-academic. I mean, films are not just like, say, philosophy texts, uh, confined to the province of academia. Mm -hmm. They're public documents in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. And there are many people who make a living writing about film who are not academics. Um, and when, uh, you know, let's say film critics like David Thompson, very famous film historian. Mm -hmm. And I think a common kind of default attitude uh, in people like Thompson or, well, let's just use him as an example, is that um, it's just a terrible thing to let loose these abstract, intellectualizing, theorizing, pointy-headed intellectuals on what ought to be just objects of delight, of pleasure and enormous aesthetic significance just as experience, and the, the kind of questions and um, compl complications, problematizations that these people are guilty of, <clears throat> we're well rid of. Um, so academic film theory is also a kind of balkanized theory. So they're, they're you know, I, I think it's fair to say there's a lot of about the intrusion of philosophers into the realm of film criticism, and there's a great deal of skepticism on the part of non-academic film critics. Um, but that's, you know, in some ways to be expected. That's not a, that's not necessarily a bad thing. They might have some some good critical points to make. Um, but it's not the case that it's just a universally accepted thing that uh, philosophical reflection on film at a fairly high level. Um, is a good thing. Many people think it ruins films. It's uh, a distortion. Uh, as you say, you said before in your kind of introduction, it's just an exemplification of philosophical problems by a kind of colonizing discipline that wants everything to be an inferior version of it rather than what it is, as in so 
criticism. So uh, it's actually been uh, kind of controversial. Uh, I, I've written now four books on film. I have a fifth coming out uh, next year on uh, the films of Douglas Sirk. Um, and I, I, I expect pretty much the same reaction as uh, uh, let's not let get the professors get their hands on these films because yeah, they'll make them much more unpleasant and complicated than they need to be. Well, it seems to me that it's not only film that can be a delight, but so can thinking, and so that an encounter between thought and cinema can be doubly delightful, and and that's pretty much the feeling I get from your books. Um, yeah. Good. Um, so you note in your introduction to film thought that there has been rising academic interest in the intersection, intersection between philosophy and cinema in recent years, and your own angle is to treat films as a form of philosophical reflection in their own right. And as we were just saying, not just as convenient objects to reflect upon, but as forms of thought. And this seems to have implications for how we might understand film, philosophy, the possibilities that arise from their relationship, and ultimately the nature of thought as such. So I'm wondering if you can expand on this, perhaps with some reference to your um, acknowledged debt to Hegel's understanding of art as a sensuous or effective form of thought or spirit. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's an incredibly good, very complicated question. I'm sorry. Um, oh, I mean, it's, uh, it's just, there's, there's not really a shorthand way to express what it means to convey an idea in a, an affective, sensible form, what it is for an idea to be felt as one experiences a film. Uh, because uh, I think as everybody realizes, the experience of film is such a temporal thing. Um, scenes are going by so fast. There's a narrative that has a kind of dynamic forward motion. I mean, since, especially in Hollywood film, since Griffith uh, invented um, the narrative editing style of uh, realist fictional film at, with this very typical American forward dynamic of constant movement towards a resolution at the end, uh, the, the experience of film is too fast uh, to be reflected. So um, it's, uh, there has to be a way of integrating what happens when one experiences a film, um, which often includes moments of confusion when one notices something um, that seems to be significant, but one can't really think about when, when it happens. So uh, this way of addressing films is a kind of plea to consider all serious film. And I don't mean just art film. I mean films made with care and craft by people who know what film is. Um, there has to be a way of explaining what there is in our experience that gives us pause to want to see the film again mm. and watch watch it again, and then watch it again. Um, Hitchcock is really one of the best at that, in laying clues into the movie that um, you think you're just being entertained, uh, but that's not the case. A little disruption that make you realize that there's something here that requires another viewing. And another viewing is just another way of saying, uh, you know, for a more coherent kind of reflective attitude towards the film. Uh, so uh, the issue of what the relationship is between the experiential, aesthetic experiential 
dynamic of watching a film and the reflective dynamic is something I think is quite interesting and not terribly well understood because the usual assumption is that the latter, the reflective dynamic, ruins the former. It just, uh, you know, clouds and complicates the pure experiential dimension of this film. But I, I, I agree very much with what you said, that you know, thinking has a kind of affective dimension as well. And to be intrigued or um, puzzled or challenged or inspired to think by a film, it's not a bad thing. It's just part of what it is for the aesthetic experience to be aesthetic. It's not the intrusion of an alien form of thought. Um, it's really, really what the film itself, if you can show someone anyway, that is what the film itself demands of you, um, then you've made your case. You've made the case that the film, as a film, is asking you to do something beyond just receiving it, beyond just being passively entertained. Yes, and um, certainly one of the great joys for anyone who loves cinema is to rewatch. And oh, yeah, in that context, reading about cinema, reading philosophy about cinema can only um, enrich the experience. Um, rather than the kind of the idea that you have to fetishize the first viewing and that it, criticism or film theory should always be attempted to kind of recapture this innocent experience of the film. Um, yeah. yeah. All right, so I'll move on to the films that you actually treat, and the first chapter is about Rear Window. Yeah. Uh, you note that the setup of Rear Window, a man immobilized in a wheelchair trying to make sense of various scenes he observes through the screen of his apartment window, has often led critics and theorists to see the film itself as some kind of allegory or critique of cinematic spectatorship in general. Your take on this, if I understand you correctly, is to claim the film should be read less as a narrowly ideological critique of what used to be called in film theory the cinematic apparatus than as an attempt to expose and interrogate the ethical problems of a spectatorial way of being in the world which is embodied in the character of Jeff. So I thought you might expand yeah. on, on, on this ethical understanding of Rear Window. Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock took an enormous gamble. Uh, I don't think it entirely worked uh, in casting Jimmy Stewart. He did the same thing in Vertigo, in mm -hmm. casting, in a way, the most likable American movie star. Mm. I mean, there were, there were several in the 30s and 40s, uh, Gary Cooper and Henry Fonda and, and Stewart and Clark Gable. But I mean, their main profile in American film was tremendous likability. Yes. Just ripping charm, and uh, it's just impossible to think anything negative about them. And then he cast uh, Stewart in these films, Rear Window and Vertigo, uh, in a way that uh, portrayed, you know, sort of the post-World War II Jimmy Stewart uh, that Anthony Mann picked up on, the, the darker, much more pessimistic Stewart. Um, than the pre-World War II steward, uh, the steward of Harvey and uh, It's a Wonderful Life and films like that. Um, so the, the decision to cast Stewart as a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of clueless, um, self-satisfied, unthinking, unreflective person, and then to try to treat him <laughs> as a kind of epitome of the moviegoer was very dangerous for Hitchcock. Um, he 
you know, he didn't want to insult his audience, and he didn't want to lose their affection for Stuart. So he had to do it with incredible subtlety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, the, uh, if you just think of the surface of the story, uh, Jimmy Stewart being erotically uninterested in Grace Kelly mm. is the most ridiculous yes. premise for uh, a, a standard Hollywood film that there is. I mean, if you just think of Cary Grant and uh, Grace Kelly and To Catch a Thief, or you know, just the enormous sparks that Grace Kelly can create or Philadelphia stories, the enormous power that Grace Kelly has on Particularly stage. Particularly as, as she's filmed in Rear Window. I mean, the moment of her entrance into the apartment is just without parallel. No, it's absolutely without parallel. It's the most beautiful photograph of her face in cinema, I, I, mm. I would say. Mm. And he's not interested <laughs> Uh, he thinks of her as a kind of whining potential wife um, rather than as Grace Kelly. So it was an incredibly risky thing, but it also introduced what is wrong with him, this, the ethical dimension that you mentioned, that um, there, is, there is just a sense of, of, it has to do with photography, of being a, an external spectator to life um, rather than a participant. And he, Hitchcock clearly was trying to suggest that Carrying over this attitude of um, independent and you know, external spectatorship, um, as if that were possible, um, was actually an ethically quite problematic relationship to the world. Uh, Stewart has these nicknames for people um, whom he sees in uh, in the windows that look like little movie screens or little television screens. Uh, Miss Lonely Hearts and uh, uh, the dancer in the, in the this torso in the, in the window across. So there's this kind of simplification and uh, spectator-like reduction of personality to genre types, mm. which is exactly what Hollywood does when it makes genre films, uh, especially when it makes bad ones. Uh, so I thought that was a really risky thing for, for Hitchcock to do, especially since he is willing to allow the movie world, uh, which is this figure for the world we keep at a distance by a spectatorial relationship to it, to break through to the world of Jimmy Stewart. You know, he has Raymond Burr actually break into the room. Mm. I I thought that's just one of the most powerful moments in the film when he asked Jimmy Stewart, what do you want from me? And he's not just asking, you know, are you trying to blackmail me? Why do you want to expose that I murdered my wife? He's asking what Hitchcock is asking of his audience. What, you know, what do you want from me? Do you want just to be entertained? Or is it possible for you to actually think about what I'm, what I'm doing with these movies? So I, that's one of my favorite scenes in movies when Raymond Burr first comes into the room before all the photo the flashbulbs start popping. And he says to Jimmy Stewart, what do you want from me? I, I just think of that as Hitchcock uh, talking to his audience about, if you just want to watch, you ought to think seriously about what it is to go through life just watching. Yes, so it's like a, it's like a, re, a re-paraphrasing of Freud, what does a woman want, but it's what does a spectator want? What, what does yeah. a person who lives their life at a distance, judging everything, really want? Yeah, um, 
yeah, very much so. Not just what does the spectator want, but what does what what do most people who live in these apartment complexes and have these very abstract neighborly relationships? Because Hitchcock is also trying to say something about that little New York world where they live in. Mm. Um, everybody knows their neighbor only by these uh, stereotypical kind of caricature uh, portrayals of them. But most of us actually have of our neighbors, if you live in an apartment building or some kind of complex where you see them only occasionally. Um, I think it's really a kind of indictment of, uh, I think what Chabrol called these little rabbit hutches in which people are occasionally observed from the outside, but in which no actual human relationship, the kind of pre-modern agricultural village-like relationship that um, it sometimes tends to be idealized. Nothing, nothing close to that occurs. It's all very abstract and because abstract, spectatorial rather than involved. I mean, you know, the, the thing that struck me about that film was uh, how little it's noticed that when uh, Grace Kelly is seeing, uh, well, she gets caught by Raymond Burr in the mm. apartment, and uh, he's threatening her. Um, all the windows are open. Yes. And Stuart never calls out. No. Leave her alone. Neither does Thelma. Leave her alone. Yeah, it's Thelma. Yeah. Stuart never does it. No. And he never, he never loads his camera. No. He never takes a picture. Yep. I mean, yep. yep. Sorry. How much more evidence do you need that Hitchcock is trying to do something different than just portray a thriller about a guy who's worried about his girlfriend climbing into a window of an apartment across the way? Um, it, it's obviously quite a loaded film. It's, it's heavily criticized for being too um, stagey and kind of airless. Um, it's a, a bit like the way people criticize rope, you know, or lifeboat. It's an experiment. It, it doesn't seem to have a lot of uh, drive or verve to it. The characters are relatively... I, I just completely disagree with that. I, I'm gripped by it from the very opening scene to the very end. Yes. Well, I have to say I am as well. Okay, your next chapter is on Almodovar's Talk to Her. Uh, you begin your account of the film by comparing the character of Benigno, the carer who rapes the comatose woman he is charged with caring for, to the prince figure in Sleeping Beauty in Snow White. Without ever seeking to justify Benigno's eventual act of raping a woman in a vegetative state, or even implying that Almodovar wants to, you do see something deeply de ambivalent in the character of Benigno, an ambivalence played out by Marco, who more or less becomes Benigno's student in the art of listening, and at the end of the film quite literally takes Benigno's place in the world. This is, of course, far from the only time that Amodovar has featured acts of rape in ways that suggest that the need to unequivocally convey moral horror may not be his primary motivation. And this has, of course, left many critics feeling very uncomfortable. Your analysis of Talk to Her identifies this very tension between morality and moralism as a theme of the film. As you put it, Almodovar's treatment does not undermine a moral judgment of Benigno, but does qualify its ultimacy. If I can put this in my own words, it is as if Almodovar's film, and perhaps your own analysis of it, wants to take us to a point not beyond good and evil, but perhaps beside it. In other words, uh, the point seems to be not to dismiss the duty of moral judgment as to, to suggest, 
Marxists suggested that there also may be a parallel moral imperative to avoid resting too easily with our own satisfaction in pronouncing it. So I wondered if you could say a little bit about uh, this implied stance on rape, questions of moral v violence and morality, and this and perhaps other films by Almodovar. Wow, that's, uh, well, I, first of all, I think uh, you put that quite beautifully, Bill. I mean, uh, <laughs> I think that's exactly it. <laughs> I don't know that I have anything to add to it, except um, uh, to say that this moment occurs in other parts of literature and film. I mean, the other uh, the other example of the Marquise Doe, the, uh, the Kleist film that Eric Roman made a movie of, I think there's a lot of references to that, in, where a woman is comatose and is sexually assaulted and is pregnant and then has to advertise in the paper for her, uh, for the father of her child and the father of her child finally uh, reveals himself and remarkably they live happily ever after, which is not a very disturbing, mm. very disturbing kind of story um, that one would have to think through in its own terms. But in, in, in this story, I think what you say about Aside rather than beyond, it's really quite well said. Um, uh, it, 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 you know, the language of moral judgment has a kind of ultimacy uh, for which, I mean, if you just think of like the paradigmatic moral philosopher who is Immanuel Kant, um, there is no doctrine of forgiveness in Kant. Uh, it's not a topic for him. If, if someone has done something morally wrong, um, they bear the burden of having done it forever. There is no possible expiation of moral wrong. So the only thing I would add to your wonderful description of the dynamic of that film um, is that it does raise, and actually doesn't just raise, it actually reflects on and tries to treat the problem of forgiveness of under what conditions could something that was inexcusable which is the impregnation of the comatose woman, um, be in some way or other redeemed. I don't, I don't know that there's much room in contemporary culture anymore for that thought, um, but the thought in general of forgiveness or of um, some way of moving beyond a past wrong, bearing the burden but not constantly being punished by the burden, uh, when does that point uh, occur? Uh, is, 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 a, is a wrong, especially a grotesque wrong, something that just has to be burdened forever? Is there something that's unforgivable? Or is the, the texture of the act, the, the love, the sympathy, the delusion um, of the character who performed the act, uh, which I think he must have known was um, completely wrong, uh, he wasn't. He wasn't insane. That, that's what makes this thing kind of interesting. Um, nevertheless, something that has a moral status that can be redeemed. That can be. I don't think we understand that very well. We don't. There, are, there isn't any sort of coherent philosophy. The conditions for forgiveness, um, and that movie makes it quite poignant, that, uh, especially in this incredibly risky movement. Of her recovery, mm, as if, the, mir the miracle. Yeah, as if she's awakened, uh, and then he takes, as you 
say, Marcus takes Marco takes her life, takes his Denise Nina's life, and becomes her her boyfriend uh, or her companion, or in some way involved in her life. Um, that notion of restoration of a kind of moral order, um, I don't I don't know that we have. I mean, I think the film poses for us the problem of what that kind of recovery from wrong or what it would be to avoid moralism and still retain a kind of moral standard would be like. We don't, we don't know that. And one of the things films can do is convince us that we don't know what we think we know. Mm, which it might be a dimension of unknowingness, which we'll be coming to. Um, it strikes me that your analysis suggests not only that it's a matter of forgiveness for the perpetrator, but of our own right or even our own duty to not stop thinking, to yeah. not take the easy satisfaction of, and the distance of judging someone as a monster um, and, and as if we're learning from, from what they have done in some way, which Marco seems to do. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's very hard to find a receptive audience for because our, our sensitivity is so heightened now and there's so you know Weinstein and Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose and all yes, these Americans. Yes, me too. Yes. Yeah, just these terribly manipulative and predatory men. Um, we tend to fold it all together, but that's not true of Benigno. He's not like that. He's not. He's not Harvey Weinstein. Um, he lives in this fantasy world in which he believes he can restore her to life, and the movie has this incredible element in which it, in which he does. Mm. It's a real challenge to the audience to try to. I mean, it, it could be, uh, as I think I say in the, in the piece, like uh, the rape of Uma Thurman at the beginning of Kill Bill or was it Kill Bill Two, I think, um, in, in in which uh, abuse of a comatose person is just grotesque. Um, and to invade that territory and have the ambition of making it other than grotesque—that's quite a risk. Yes, uh, but I, successful. it's bound to, uh, and I think probably deliberately bound to make a viewer or a critic uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and why would it be the moral option to make people feel comfortable about such things? You know, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, so the next film you treat is Shadow of a Doubt by Hitchcock. And uh, unknowingness is a suggestive term that it reappears throughout your book including uh, your analysis of Shadow of a Doubt. It is a concept that I found fascinating and, appropriately enough, a little hard to pin down. I think, though I'm not yet absolutely sure, that it has a lot to do with Hegel's account of consciousness as always caught up in a process of playing out forms of self-understandings whose limits and stakes it does not yet fully understand. And in this case, you identify a principal theme of Shadow of Doubt as the invisibility of evil in the midst of the ordinary, a kind of blindness that implies unknowingness at the heart of the ordinary and the good. You claim that this theme of unknowingness runs through all of Hitchcock's films. Can you talk about your use of the term unknowingness and also how it might relate to more common terms like ignorance or self-deception and how it is played out in Hitchcock generally and in Shadow of a Doubt in particular? Yeah, um, well... It, I mean, the other reference here would be to Cavell on skepticism, uh, because uh, 
this it clearly intersects with his his view of all movies yes, as uh, as he says a moving image of skepticism. Um, so I mean, as a general notion, what's so common a theme in Hitchcock is that we get other people wrong, especially that we blame the wrong person. Um, and mm. so many movies are about um, people who should not be blamed, trying to establish perhaps a paradigmatic one is North by Northwest, uh, trying to establish their uh, innocence uh, of something they've wrongly been accused of. Or well, the wrong man, of course. Or the wrong man. Or yep. you, know, you know, strangers on the train, uh, you know, <laughs> there's various variations and complications of it as well. Um, uh, the man who knew too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, this seems to me in Hitchcock not to be a kind of, uh, meant to be a kind of occasional phenomenon, but a constitutive part of modern social life that um, our relations with others have become so abstract or uh, we interact with people at, at so many levels in uh, a common, you know, sort of complex, modern, productive economy that we don't we don't know them very well, and we need to rely on stereotypical assumptions and cliches and typologies that are completely inadequate, and that we're constantly getting other people other people wrong, and that we have to live with the burden of it. It's not like we could do something. That's what's so interesting about this guy. It's not like we could do something and correct it. Uh, it's it's more a matter of how to bear the burden of unknowing, of not not knowing. And in in, in shadow of a doubt, um, you've got an entire small town completely incapable of understanding the signs that indicate that there is a serial murder murderer in their midst. And this young girl who has this unusual bond with the murderer, they have the same, basically the same name, Charlie and Charles. Um, and they, she seems to have some way of understanding that something is wrong that nobody else, absolutely nobody else in the town has. Even the FBI agents don't have a firm sense uh, from their encounter with him, whether he's the one they're waiting for evidence from outside to determine whether he's the, the murderer they're seeking. So uh, his ability to portray what looks like a kind of humorous, uh, charming, um, normal, middle-class, happy family um, as not that, as, as actually relatively indifferent to each other uh, lonely, isolated from each other, especially the speech of the wife uh, at the end um, when, when she says in a completely heartbreaking way, you know, you, you get married, you become your husband's wife, you forget that you're you. Um, indicates that he's trying to say that it's not just these, uh, this absolutely contingent Conception, uh, uh, collection of people who are incapable of appreciating the difference at a deep level between appearance and reality. Um, but that most American life, I mean, uh, 
is that way. I, mean, I think Hitchcock always said this was his favorite film of all the films he'd made. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Reason, yeah, the reason was because you know he'd made two films for Selznick when he moved from England. They were they were incredibly successful. Rebecca Fisher and so forth, and you know Academy Awards and everything. But they were British films, and I think he he thought this was the first film in which he understood how to make films about Americans. And it was this dimension of the film, the American confidence in their own virtue and the ironic uh, falsity, thinness of that confidence that he found, I think, so interesting in the American character. Yes, it's a, it's amazing. Um, similarly to the way he uses Jimmy Stewart, um, the transformation of Joseph Cotton, who is, I think, yeah. normally embodies reasonableness, and that's yeah. it, tipped over into something much darker. And that that's it's if that potentiality in the persona of Joseph Cotton is, is something unknown that's revealed in the film and that embodies this dimension we're, you're, you're talking about. Yeah, I think the uh, the idea is that the audience probably takes longer than Charlie, uh, the niece, to figure out. <laughs> to accept it. This is not your normal Joseph Cotton. This is not Joseph Cotton and Citizen Kane. This is a completely different thing. Yeah, that's something that you talk about with regard to Humphrey Bogart in a film that oh. we'll get to in a little while too, that the, the audience's expectation of the type that that actor should yeah. personify. Okay, so the next film is Chinatown. I'll admit I'm a little worried that we've perhaps already covered part of this question, in, but we'll see how we go. So, um, Light Window, um, Shadow of a Doubt, Talk to Her, and In a Lonely Place, Chinatown features an act of extreme male violence at its core, this time an incestuous rape. Once again, without ever morally excusing perpetrators, you are not satisfied simply with pronouncing moral judgment. In this case, you argue that Houston, Houston's Noah Cross, responsible both for raping his daughter and planning to do the same with her daughter, as well as conspiring to mislead the people of L.A. regarding the status of their water supply, should not be viewed as the ultimate source of evil in Polanski's film. Instead, you say that Chinatown itself is the source, and that Chinatown is not a geographical place, nor even a state of mind, as the screenwriter Robert Town suggested. It is rather the characteristic of a world, Chinatown is a whole form of life gone wrong. Life itself become false. It is again as if you are thinking, asking us to think beside good and evil. In the era of Me Too, especially with regard to a film by Roman Polanski, who is himself, of course, known to have transgressed in, in this regard, you could be seen to be taking a double risk of, of yourself, of being judged as having bypassed your duty, to condemn both misogyny and racism, as implied in the use of the term Chinatown. Can you talk a bit about the philosophical importance, as you see it, of reserving the right to think uh, beside or beyond the certainties of moral judgment as it works out in your understanding of this film? Yeah, well, um, first, of course, Polanski is ironizing or making fun of the idea that all the evil in Los Angeles could be located in an ethnic ghetto. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the great sort of thought of the movie, that Chinatown is not Chinatown. Uh, you know, the last, the most famous line of the movie is, at the end, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Mm. And 
the, the piercing force of the irony uh, is that it, it, it has nothing, nothing of the evil that is uh, descended on Los Angeles has anything to do with Chinatown. It has to do with Noah Cross hmm. and the to um, fraudulently seize uh, the lands of farmers uh, so that they can be flooded for a reservoir that will expand Los Angeles and make possible a lot of money for a lot of uh, white people who are already very rich. So there's just no no question that the, the title of the town is the title of the movie Chinatown is profoundly ironic. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, what really interested me about the movie was was this idea from Adorno um, that if a form of life itself is so corrupt, has gone so wrong, that individuals who are trying to do the right thing within it um, face a much more difficult and complicated situation than they would in uh, a world that was just, you know, sort of a normal combination of virtue and corruption, uh, rationality and irrationality. So the, the normal, finite human world, the suggestion that something has gone so fundamentally wrong with American life that there's no, there's no way of being virtuous in it, that being virtuous is really just sort of offering yourself up for slaughter. Um, what would life be like in that situation? What would you, what would you do if um, any stance in favor of anything substantively right would effectively end your existence or your commodious existence? You, you know, you'd suffer for the rest of your life. I mean, would it be really uh, reasonable to think that everybody should be so constantly righteous? Uh, how can you be a good person in the wrong world? In, in a world where uh, everything you think you're relying on to act properly is deceptive or illusory or uh, corrupt or uh, part of the self-interested scheme of somebody else. Um, and Jake, uh, you know, the Jack Nicholson character in Chinatown is um, has spent his life having experienced that, trying to avoid it, trying to just hide. Hmm in a way like now we're trying to hide from the coronavirus and we're trying to convince ourselves that by hiding from it, we're beating it. <laughs> Jake is in that same illusion. He's just hiding. And Faye Dunaway in that whole plot with just the John Houston character draws him back into it. And he's so reluctant. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to try to do the right thing and he'll get somebody killed. Uh, we get the sense that that's what happened the last time. He tried to be a, a right person in a wrong world. Mm. That's exactly what happens again. Uh, he, he, he thinks he's helping, and all he's doing is delivering Evelyn's baby into the arms of Noah Cross. Uh, so uh, that's a, as dark a film as any I talk about in the collection. That, 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 there's no way out of that. In a way, it's bad faith by Polanski. Um, I think I mentioned that once in the article that uh, this famous line by Noah Cross to Jack Nicholson, the John Houston character, Noah Cross, that um, you know you have no right to judge me. You have no idea what, in a given situation, people would be willing to do. Mm. That's 
Polanski is kind of self-justification for, you don't really understand the kind of life I lead, so you can't understand why I would drug and rape a 13-year-old girl in my bathroom. Mm. So there's a lot of bad faith in the directorial stance towards the film. But that doesn't have anything to do with the film. The film itself, I think, just completely and quite credibly uh, makes experienceable by the audience what it would be to live in a world so wrong that the only right thing to do would be suicidal. Like the theme of uh, Hidden Life, the new new movie by uh, Malik. That's part of the same point. Yeah. So that's perhaps another ethical point in passing that even if we want to condemn the actions of a director or an artist, we don't need to deprive ourselves of the experience of their of their work. Oh, sure, sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Elliot, Elliot was a raving anti-Semite, but they're great poems. That's right. Or, or even Pound. The yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you, the next film, the next chapter is about Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows. And oh, yeah. a certain... Cirque's films were once widely dismissed as mere melodrama or women's films. In melodrama, as you approach it, social life is theatrical, but the players believe in their role. And this complex relationship to uh, social norms allows a genre associated with a kind of easy wish fulfillment to take on a pointed, critical edge. You say that All That Heaven Allows is both a genuine melodrama and an interrogation of the form. And you argue this irony should not be understood as assuming two audiences, one naive, the other one knowing and sophisticated, and tell us that Cirque ultimately treats America's self-understanding or self-narration as a kind of melodrama. And you note the slightly delirious, overwrought postcard projection of the world in the film in terms of lighting and colour, and suggest this reflects the character's own view of themselves, like a kind of objectification of their subjectivity, or as if fantasy had been externalised as the texture of the world. So can you expand on the way Cirque uses elements of mise-en-scene, lighting, props, colour, deep focus, costume, etc., to express this very specific kind of irony uh, in uh, All That Heaven Allows? Ah, well... You know, I have to say, Bill, I would I would give anything to have a reader like you of all the books I've written. That's a wonderful summary of that uh, of that chapter. Uh, it, it doesn't leave a lot to say. Uh, it really sums it up quite well. I mean, uh, the obvious thing to say is that the the um, this, this sort of cinematic free indirect discourse, where you, what you're seeing is not really what's there, but something like the projection of the psychological experience of the character of what's there. Um, the one thing that uh, people mention most about Cirque is the color scheme. Mm. Um, there is a kind of a glossy, high-fashion magazine look to the colors um, that are not ever visible that way in ordinary life. So there is a kind of already a fantasy element of the, the prettiness and orderliness and Sheen, there's a kind of shine, uh, a fashion magazine kind of gloss to the colors that's completely unnatural. I mean, you hardly ever use natural light. There's just an incredibly complex, uh, the, the, the cinematographer, the, the 
people who were involved in actually producing it technically, um, it was quite quite an enterprise to get the look that certain photos wanted. Um, and this idea that you're seeing a projection of the fantasy of the life they live by the people who are living it um, is not, I think, meant by Cirque to be uh, something restricted to this sort of small-town, heady world that that film uh, depicts, but is just an inevitable need uh, in, by people who are living in a world in which the, the actual reality of what they live is unacceptable, it's too painful or humiliating or uh, you know, dehumanizing in some way, but they need to live in another world and there this suburban existence of a kind of uh, home and garden, you know, magazine kind of sense of uh, happiness and security and beauty um, is a major element in the film, especially in how to understand the the, the conclusion of the film, because uh, this this guy who is supposed to re- represent a, a break from suburban conformism. Mm. Rock has a role as a lover of Jane Wyman. Um, uh, he ends up building for her a home very much like the home she would want to live in. Uh, so there is this uh, ironic treatment of what, um, especially by the use of the references a few times to Thoreau mm. and to Walsh, um, what would look like the ideal of a rustic, original, authentic life uh, turning out to be expressed in a mode that uh, is uh, pretty much what we would consider, I don't know if they have it in Australia, crate and barrel or, uh, you know, kind of upper middle class, safe, pastel furnishing, uh, kind of uh, stereotypical uh, middle wealth world. So uh, there's just this incredible co-option at the end of what looked like a moment of resistance, an older woman and a younger man, a socially uh, higher class woman and a working class person, that this disruptive element that the community can't deal with um, has been resolved by love in the end, which is a melodramatic reading on the surface of the film. Uh, But then it turns out that it's only possible by means of the entire co-option of the rebellious element unthinkingly and unreflectively into the form of life in which they thought of themselves as escaping. Yes, so your next chapter uh, covers the film Johnny Guitar. Uh, You point out that Ray's film is instantly recognisable as a work in the Western genre, as evidenced in the setting, the prostitute with a heart of gold, the gunslinger, the coming of the railroad, the bank robbery, the culminating shootout, etc. But you also note that the film is easily and often recognised as off-kilter or excessive or even camp in relation to the Western genre. Invoking a classic philosophical distinction, you say the markers of the Western are here mentioned rather than used, as if the defining themes and elements of the Western have been reduced to mere decorations, which is literally the case in the saloon where there are uh, there's a stagecoach and a train as decorations. This yeah. seems to be another form of genre irony, rem- reminiscent in some ways of Cirque's relation to melodrama. 
Can you talk about the specific stakes of this irony in Johnny Guitar and the way it is expressed cinematically? Uh, in this context, you might also might want to choose to address a question that occurred to me, which is the relationship between your use of unknowingness and a term much more familiar to um, film theorists, which is the unconscious, or between yeah. another term you use, unknowing irony, and the term symptom. Yeah. Yeah, the psychoanalytic dimension is a very interesting one, uh, and there are similarities, uh, because most people who live in unknowingness don't know they live in unknowingness, and they're, in a way, uh, all too confident that they know what they need to know about other people. So they're kind of haunted by the implications of them not knowing what they think they know in a way that has something to do with, with being haunted by unconscious motivations that we don't... Uh, we don't consciously accept. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's a rich, a rich theme. I, I'm not sure how to discuss um, economically, but in in, in, in Johnny Guitar, the, the more specific manifestation of it, uh, of, the, of the general theme, would be the inapplicability of the Western narrative genre uh, for what's happening to the characters within it. The fact that the genre has become uh, so stylized and mannered that um, nothing in uh, what is narrated in its terms is credible and always seems like an ironic commentary on the narrative. I, I just found that so interesting in in Ray. I mean, he has these uh, for for people who are listening who haven't who haven't seen the film. Um, the characters are dressed in fantastically colorful costumes, mm. like like an Easter parade kind of thing, with uh, very very bright silk shirts and bandanas tied around the neck, and a kind of dandyism in the presentation of the outlaws and the good guy Johnny Guitar, or the ex bad guy good guy, which is another cliche question. Yep. Um, uh, and then the, the enormous irony surrounding the Jeff Crawford character, uh, that, that the uh, outlandishness of the staging, uh, not just the costumes, but the, the major set, which is a, a bar that's been cut into a mountain wall with an enormous grand piano right near the, the back mountain wall of the, of the, the bar room scene that dominates 70, 75% of the film um, is just so ridiculous. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it's a so over-the-top staging uh, that a kind of airlessness and emptiness in the opening scene. Uh, uh, that in, in One of the achievements of the film is that they're, they're inside the narrative about the coming of the railroad and this ex-prostitute um, ownership of a great deal of the land uh, that the railroad that's coming will need, and the resistance of the town people to both the railroad, because they, they want to keep their own grazing land for their cattle, and to her, to Vienna, the woman who has the ex-prostitute who has all the land, uh, their resistance to her being the one going to determine the future of the community, which is really the driving force of the narrative, uh, almost on an insane level of uh, anger occurred. Uh, uh, that that dynamic.
actually in the midst of all this highly stylized suggestion that the narrative frame of the Western is no longer adequate to the psychological irrationality involved underneath the standard Western plot, that all becomes quite credible. It's not just a send-up of the Western. It's that the, the, the level of psychological irrationality, some of which has to do with what you first asked about, the unconscious, because the rivalry between Mercedes and Cambridge, uh, who is the leader of the sort of destroy the ex-prostitute Vienna faction in the town, mm. and Vienna for the love of uh, I know viewers haven't seen this film. It's going to sound ridiculous. But the love of John Guitar yeah. um, is also this subtle kind of lesbian attractiveness that Mercedes McCambridge character hates in herself for Vienna. So that dynamic plays out very strongly in this film, uh, which is yet another suggestion that there are just too many things that we now think are have a bearing on human conduct, like irrationality, unconscious, repressed sexual desire, you know, symptomology, and so forth, uh, that the Western narrative is threatened by them. It doesn't destroy it, because there's still something about the attempt to um, uh, modernize without destroying what was valuable in the pre-modern world that Westerns are always about, uh, that still survives in this film. But uh, this this level of ironic treatment and serious examination of irrational motivation uh, that I think is very well done. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the relationship, the opposition between uh, Vienna and I think it's Emma, it's extraordinary. The, the, the scene where Vienna is playing the piano when, when the posse arrives to, to capture her and she's making a de- demonstration of her of her superior civility, as opposed to Emma, who is so driven by this dark sexual energy, she can't acknowledge it's 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 without peer, yeah, I like, think. It's like uh, the Furies, the Humanities in Aeschylus. Yes, she arrived as a Humanities. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so your next uh, chapter is on, on another film by Nicholas Ray in a lonely place. You argue that the question a stir between the characters in this film, and therefore also posed to us as the audience, is something like this. What do we really know when we claim to understand someone, to know who they really are? The irony is that the very process of trying to determine the answer seems to drive both protagonists to act like and effectively become particular kinds of people in a sort of romantic Heisenberg principle, as if trying to measure the position of the other inevitably changes or determines that position. The stakes of this questioning process are posed at the highest possible pitch for uh, Laurel. The question is, is Dixon really the kind of person who will love me for who I truly am or murder me? You relate this problem to the philosophical theme of skepticism about other minds, particularly as articulated by Cavell, in terms of a distinction between passive and active skepticism. So I wondered if you might be able to address those ideas. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, the, 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 the central problem in the film is just such an easily recognizable one um, that uh, falling in love with someone uh, implies a level of commitment that is itself um, something that presupposes 
a level of deep trust that your exposure to some vulnerable harm um, won't happen. Um, and uh, in that film, uh, I, I, the, I, most of the first couple of viewings of the film uh, were so enthralled with Hitchcock as a character um, that uh, I think this is true of me as well, that you begin to read, to, to uh, not really excuse him, but to think that his growing violence and instability is, again, in a very typical way with Ray, ironically, a result of people suspecting him of violence and instability. Mm. That if, if he hadn't been suspected of it, there, there would be no occasion for him to be um, credibly suspected of something extremely violent, like the murder of a young girl. I mean, he might get in a bar fight, but to go from there to believing that Humphrey Bogart could drive a girl uh, home, but on the way, strangle her and dump her out of the car, that's just inconceivable at the beginning of the film. Um, but it becomes more conceivable, not because we begin to know more evidence about him, but, become, but because he becomes to be more like that sort of a person when people suspect him of being that sort of a person. Um, and the question is, well, maybe that just makes manifest that he was always that kind of person, and the suspicion just brings it out, or that the unfairness of the suspicion, which is all based on no evidence, but just a consideration of his type, somebody like him who gets into bar fights, um, that the unfairness of that consideration of him is what generates the way he looks guilty. Uh, and so the woman, the Gloria Graham character in the film, has this terrible problem that the more she suspects him, the more he turns into the person she suspects. Just, that's, that's as rich and painful an irony as there is in in uh, noir melodrama, which is what this is. Yes, and, and as you point out, it's unlike most film noir, it's, it, the, the female character is not a femme fatale. It really is a, an exploration of her hope for true love, to be truly recognized and to truly recognize an, another person. So the, I suppose the irony is a kind of tragedy. It is. I mean, what could she do? I mean, uh, once the scene at the beach occurs, and he uh, he drives home in a fury, and he's almost run off the road, and he uh, he stops this confronted young man who uh, he almost had an accident with, and their car is basically touched, and then he almost kills him. Yes. Uh, that moment on, uh, Gloria Graham, you know, really has no choice but to think, because um, they're very careful, uh, Ray is very careful at the beginning of the film when they're first interrogating her, um, and she's sitting behind. Oh, sorry, you're breaking up a bit. Can you say that again? Uh, yeah, there's just a momentary Yeah. And it just happened again. Yeah. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just saying they were very careful at the beginning to indicate um, that it's not entirely clear at all that she saw the girl who was telling him the story of the book at the beginning. Mm not at all clear that she saw her leave without Humphrey Bogart. Mm. And that's, that's very clearly done in the first investigation. 
his office. Anyway, so she decides to back him because she says she likes his face. Yes. In a way, something like the basis on which a lot of people fall in love. It's like even Marie Saint to uh, Cary Grant in the in the dining car in North by Northwest when she says uh, it's a nice face. Mm. <laughs> and she, he says, "You recognize my face?" And she says, "It's a nice face." And <clears throat> that's their moment of you know spiritual contact. And she does the same thing for him. But once the the scene on the road occurs with uh, the, the near murder of a perfectly innocent person who was just arguing with him about a murder accident. Um, she loses faith in him, and when he senses that, he just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So then there's the question of, well, what's the truth about what kind of person he is? Is he the kind of person that that reveals, or is he the kind of person that that creates? Yeah. Okay, so the next film you address is The Thin Red Line by Terence Malick. Um, yeah. Which is a film that I've been fascinated with myself. Um, I, yeah, I yeah. personally experienced the, the polarized reaction that, that you talk about. The first time I thought it, I saw it was a, I thought it was a pretentious film kind of using the suffering of soldiers to, to impose this poetry upon. And then the second time I saw it, it became one of my favorite films that I've ever seen. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you remind us that the conventions of Hollywood movies are well established and readily recognizable. The eth ethnically diverse group dynamic that embodies a certain kind of egalitarianism, colorful characters, likably wise minor characters who die first, the gruff but caring sergeant, and then there are revisionist variations on this formula, often associated with so-called anti-war films, uh, corrupt careerists, the absurdity of the war itself, etc., but across all these variations, a common underlying theme emerges, which is how do ordinary citizens become enabled to kill and risk their own death on command? And there are two conventional answers offered to this, as you indicate, within the genre of the war film. Uh, one is investment by soldiers in the mission at some level, and the other, which I think is far more common today, uh, I, I think that the belief in the mission is fairly rarely invoked in contemporary war films, but what is much more common is the idea of a special solidarity that bonds each soldier to the guy next to him, the, the, yeah. the, um, the, the, the unspeakable special bond that develops between soldiers, uh, which doesn't necessitate actually believing in any abstract ideals. And you say that the Thin Red Line only evokes these conventions in order to question or ironize them, and that the major innovations or disruptions in the, of the genre in this film take the form of unexplained visual moments of natural beauty, which is exactly the kind of thing that leads people to think, well, this is, this is all just a, an exercise in pretension, and the constant counterpoint of poetic and apparently interior monologues. Can you uh, talk about how you view these two aspects of the Thin Red Line, which have tended to sharply polarize critics? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the, I, the center of the film is um, this decision. Uh, I mean, so there's a, there's a, a plot element, uh, two major plot elements. One is this conflict between uh, Sean Penn's character and Jim Caviezel's character. Mm -hmm. What is it to be a warrior? What is it to be brave? 
um, what is the virtue of honor? They they have this incredibly abstract philosophical uh, colloquy mm. uh, going throughout the film. Uh, that's one element of the plot that is a major organizing feature of the movie. It's not really in the James Jones novel. It's, it's, it's totally invented, probably on set as an issue by Malick. And the other is the battle. Um, and then, you know, supervening on everything is the um, photographic and linguistic uh, location. Of the natural natural world, um, so the, uh, the 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 colloquy between uh, I mean you have to ask yourself what's that all about? And I didn't I didn't think I did a good enough job talking about that. Uh, what is the dispute between Sean Penn and Jim Casaville about? Um, Casaville keeps going AWOL. But he keeps returning. Um, we have a little satellite problem, probably. Yes, we're a long way apart. I should have pointed yeah. out at the beginning that I'm in Australia and you're in America. Yeah, that's right. That's just a miracle. It is. That we're actually to each other. We shouldn't complain, should we? No. Uh, um, uh, it, it has it has something to do with the meaning of war uh, and their different reactions to it. Uh, one very skeptical about philosophical reflection about the point of reflectiveness in general about war. Very cynical, almost nihilistic. It's just what we're stuck with. And Casimir, who's just who's um, this disruption in the cynical, normal army attitude that we just were stuck here and we have to kill somebody or we're going to get killed and then we'll maybe be able to go home, which is this, this sort of Sean Penn character kind of thing. But he's tremendously attracted to Casimir's character mm. and uh, his more sort of mystical sense of... Um, how the war has raised these fundamental philosophical issues that they ought to pay attention to and that have to do with the bond between men that Sean Penn will never understand that kind of thing. But the, the, not, the, the most interesting irony in this film is the, the battle plot um, because um, the attempt to take this hill requires a kind of commitment uh, on the part of a I, I, you know, retired school, not a retired, but a, a drafted school teacher mm. who uh, enjoys the love of his men. Um, and in, it, it sort of raises the question of whether it will ever be possible for there to be an army, especially a drafted army, uh, an army of civilians uh, who are not professional soldiers and are not used to seven or eight or nine or ten years of living as professional soldiers before they're engaged in combat, um, if it's ever possible for drafted normal people to do what this school teacher is asked to do, which is to send his men into a 70-80% casualty range uh, in order to take the top of the hill, uh, which is a, a famous trope. 
one of the more interesting parts of the movie is that he's right. Mm. The, the school teacher was wrong. They they capture the, the, the ground they're supposed to capture, and they're victorious in general. Uh, and so I thought uh, the this lack of a complete lack of fit between the the this sort of pacific nature of the bourgeois world in mid-century America and what would be required were we to have a citizen's army was one of the most interesting aspects of the film. Yeah. So your last chapter addresses the work of the Dardenne brothers. And I have to admit that I've been a little worried that my questions to this point have not sufficiently emphasized the sensitive tone and range of your book considered a work of film scholarship. Fortunately, the last chapter of your book, which addresses the Dardin brothers, is also probably the one that most clearly displays your readiness to treat film as film, which is to say as something that exists and is expressive through the way it is shot and edited, rather than as a surrogate form of propositional discourse. While focusing largely on the sun, you argue that the Dardenne's films always revolve around a moral problem of decision for a protagonist. For example, Rosetta deciding whether to inform on a friend in order to secure a job for herself. But this problem is rendered cinematically intelligible in the Dardenne's own characteristic, characteristic way and never in the form of explicit propositions. Your treatment of their work therefore becomes as much a demonstration of what the phrase cinematic intelligibility might imply as an exploration of context or an explication of philosophical concepts. And to give an example, you point out that the Dardens have been criticised from the traditional left for allegedly obscuring social and political forces that should be revealed as shaping the fates of their usually marginalised protagonists and that this criticism is sometimes seized on formal aspects of their films. For example, again, their distinctive and repeated use of an obsessively close and following ca camera has been said to correspond to a refusal to acknowledge political context, effectively blocking a broader view and encouraging viewers to blame the individual vic victim. You reject this literalist analysis as absurd, and instead show how this and other innovations, you provide an inventory of four characteristic moves in terms of editing and cinematography, allow the Dardenne's to make films that think the social context of their sorry, protagonists in a singularly illuminating fashion. So I wondered if you could talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I mean, dealing with the, the, the sort of uh, left, but mostly Marxist criticism of, uh, because the, the Dardenne films are so focused on psychology, and that, for um, more traditional Marxist critics, um, looks like um, kind of bourgeois perspective on the difficulties of uh, social class being manifest primarily in psychological suffering. Um, I, I, you're right. I, I do really reject that. There, in fact, I think they're actually the best at portraying. Um, in effect, a new economic world, uh, the world that isn't terribly well conceptualized by traditional Marxism, which is um, the enormous reliance on migrant labor in Europe and the United States and, well, you know, in Israel and in various places in the world, um, where you have people who are uh, essential to the economic process but who don't belong to any class and who are so far outside the system of production and consumption that they 
they have no status whatsoever, much less a class status. And I think one of the the signal and most important achievements of the Darden brothers is to focus attention on this new political situation in which there are millions of people who are invisible to the power structure of a, of a modern industrial, post-industrial society. So the way they depict the, the individuals in Sarang and other small the old towns in Belgium um, strikes me as enormously insightful about um, a, a brand new kind of social problematic of invisibility that isn't something that fits into the traditional um, Marxist categories. And then their, their analysis, in a way, cinematically, I mean, so let's stop there and, t- and talk about that. Cinematic intelligibility is very, very deeply uh, connected to visual intelligibility in ordinary life, that we rely on making sense of other people visually um, simply by interpreting their faces, their gestures, their the tonality of their words, and so forth. And I, they're, they're extremely good at suggesting that one of the signal powers of cinematic intelligibility is to connect what happens when we watch movies to our own um, moral evaluation of other people in, in everyday life. Um, I mean, this is an area of the Darden brothers I'm not entirely comfortable with. Um, they're they're very influenced by uh, the French philosopher uh, Levinas mm. and a kind of experiential uh, dimension of morality in which um, the, the look of the other, the, the 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 simple encounter with another human being, is the determinative factor in whether one feels called on by the other to respond in a way that is um, appropriate to the other being distinctly other. Um, so in, in films like The Promise, this extraordinary moment at the end where um, the boy who knows what happened to the woman's husband, that he's been killed and buried, this, this terribly powerful last phrase, Amadou is more, uh, Amadou is dead. Um, uh, I, I found that incredibly incredibly moving because there's no traditional philosophical account of the motivation behind his confession. It's simply something he has to do. Um, and I, over the years, I've become much less convinced that morality in human life is a matter of principle and the realization of principle or the exercise of practical rationality or the calculation of consequences. That's not how moral life works in the everyday world. It works cinematically as a matter of visual intelligibility, and it works in everyday life as a matter of visual intelligibility. I mean, the guy can't possibly let this woman go without telling her the truth. And that has a kind of power that doesn't really have a lot of resonance in in philosophy, even, even in a way in Levinas. Um, it, it, the discursive account of the look of the other and that sort of thing. Um, so, so number one, I, I, I think they've identified a social um, context that traditional left and Marxist critics haven't yet been able to theorize properly, that, and this, this general problem of massive numbers of people who are invisible um, as immigrants, uh, primarily but mostly as migrant labor, who have no status, who can be who can be fired without 
Black Rosetta, um, fired without consequence. Um, and then secondly, they've um, begun to sketch a kind of moral context for this um, encounter between people in a world where the traditional categories of morality don't don't really apply. Um, that seems to me, in a way that that film and visual art relies on, are just incredibly credible, compelling. Um, that's not the same sort of thing as a discursive argument for why he ought to tell her the truth before she leaves at the end of the promise. Um, but no one who watches that film um, can doubt that it, he ought to tell her. But it's not an ought that makes a lot of sense in in philosophy. It's It's spontaneous and unmotivated in a way that seems to me to have a kind of truth that and this, this is connected to a very large issue that I talk about in that chapter. Um, That's also a, a feature of something you mentioned yesterday, the film noir book about uh, agency. That um, it's very the philosophical account of agency have a very idealized structure about people knowing their own intentions and realizing them by adopting means to realize their intentions. But most people don't know why they do what they do, and uh, there are very few. I mean, it's true that in the 40s, uh, there were quite a lot of really good film noirs that began to to show what it means for individuals in the context of mass anonymous societies not to have very deep access to why they're motivated to do what they do. But the Dardenne brothers take it, I think, uh, a step further and, and are very, very uh, compelling in uh, showing us especially in the sun, where a man, uh, his son is murdered um, by a young offender who goes to prison and then comes out of the prison and begins to work in the halfway house or uh, sort of, uh, vocational school that the father of the boy who was murdered um, teaches that. The, the father takes him on without having the slightest idea of why he's taking him on. Um, and in a way, uh, in, in terms of traditional um, philosophical conceptions of agency, that doesn't make any sense. There must be a hidden motive, an unconscious motive, a self-deceived motive. Uh, um, it, it doesn't make any sense that he would do something without intending to do it, without knowing his own intention of doing it. But the, the film makes it very clear that all of that is irrelevant. He doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. The wife asks him. Why are you doing this? And he says, "I, I, I don't know. Mm. I don't know." It's, it's the, the same kind of answer that Scotty gives in uh, in Vertigo, and uh, Kim Novak asks him after he's trying to remake her into Madeline, "Why are you doing this?" And he says, "I, I don't know. <laughs> no reason, I guess." And as I say, one of the great powerful virtues of film is that it can make credible in a moment. A simple instant, uh, something that philosophy can't incorporate into a discursive account of human action. So, for all that reason, I think the Dardenne brothers are really exploring um, right on the edge of both a new socio-historical context and then a new conception of the kind of psychology necessary to account for how individuals caught in that context uh, can actually deal with their lives. Yeah, I have to say I found that 
there's a kind of critique of interiority of the assumption that we have well-formed intentions that that motivate and guide our, guide our actions throughout your book and that's something that's really stayed with me. I, I saw a film last night, I wonder if you've seen it, it's the Australian Western, which is appropriately called The Proposition. And I won't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's very <laughs> much, I mean, that's very expressed in a very, totally different yeah. way, but the main protagonist, yeah. played by Guy Pearce, acts in, in apparently contradictory ways, always uh, as if he doesn't know himself beforehand that he's going to act. But once he has... He's morally sure he's done the right thing. The action itself is yeah. the decision. And, and that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And the other, the other dimension of this is that you begin to have a different sense of not only what you did, <laughs> but what you intended to do um, when you experience the reactions of other people. Mm-hmm. You, you get a, a, you get a sense of how public action is. But it's not a matter of your privately owning the action. Once the bodily movement that you undertake is expressed in the public space of the world, um, you have a chance to reclaim it in a different way. Given what you see, experience, it means in the public world that you could not have anticipated. So the kind of serial formulation of an intention after deliberation, the beginning of the decision to realize the intention, the public expression of the intention, the the one, two, three, four kind of step-by-step notion of a temporal sequence, I think there are a lot of films, uh, both by the Dardenne brothers, the Proposition is one of them, uh, and especially a lot of film noir in the 40s, um, really incredibly undermined. And that philosophy, um, you know, hasn't taken much account of because they think of these as just, you know, marginal cases, hard examples, uh, you know, not really significantly relevant to the theory. Uh, I think that's a tremendous res- mistake on the part of uh, philosophy, especially philosophy that's sensitive to how the historical conditions for what the expression of your own individual agential power um, is. It changes. It's, it's, it's not like a metaphysical feature of um, what it is to be a subject. It, it depends, given this publicity problem, it depends a great deal on the kind of social context within which the action is formulated and expressed. And nobody is better than that than the, than the Dardenne. Karyasami is very good at that as well. But mm-hmm. those are the two best filmmakers, I think, working today. So, so there's a sense in which our decisions are both intersubjective and retrospective. That instead... Retrospective especially, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the Hegelian sense, That's, I suppose. Yeah, yeah precisely, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I won't try to pronounce the German word. <laughs> Naturlichkeit, I think. Um, Naturlichkeit, yeah, right, yeah. Okay, well, I suppose we've run out of time um, at this point, so I just have to ask you one last standard question. Um, I should say that it has been an unequivocal pleasure and a privilege to discuss your book. And to wind up, I wonder if you can tell us what you are working on next. Well, you know, thank you, Bill. As I said last night, I'm really grateful for the care you've... Uh, it's very unusual for somebody to, to devote this kind of thoughtful attention to a work of film criticism. I've never experienced it before, so I'm really quite grateful to you. Um, but I've written, a, I've written a book on the American melodramatist Douglas Sirk. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been doing. Uh, I was supposed to be writing a book. I got a Guggenheim this year to... Uh, to write a book on Heidegger's um, 
criticism of Hegel. And I, I have been working on that, if anybody from the Guggenheim is listening. Uh, <laughs> I have been working on that throughout the year. <laughs> um, but I also um, have been interested for the last three or four years in melodrama, and especially um, the category of subversive melodramas, or ironic melodramas, second-thought mm. melodramas, where um, some aspect of the melodramatic conventions are invoked and work, and people are you know, sad and moved in that way. But there are signs that there's another movie going on you know, kind of a trap door thing where you realize, wait, wait a minute, that, uh, the movie seems to be about a standard melodramatic situation, but it's actually meta-melodramatic. It's actually commenting on the need for melodrama on the part of the audience. So I've written a book about the greatest melodramatist in the American film tradition, uh, Douglas Sirk. And I, I have comments on um, uh, Ophel's and uh, Nicholas Ray, um, and um, a, a few other, uh, Manelli, and uh, a few other melodramatists, but it's mostly concentrated on three films by Cirque, uh, All That Heaven Allows, Written on the Wind, and Imitation of Life, in which um, th- this wonderful theme of cinematic irony, how a film convinces you that what you are seeing and believing is not something that should be taken at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the incredible thing about, uh, there's a, a wonderful film theorist, I think a, a student of Victor Perkins in England called James McDowell has written a book on uh, on irony in cinema and another book on uh, happy endings in Hollywood cinema, both of which are just fantastic books if you don't know them. I don't. Your own interest mm-hmm. that I I know from having looked at your own work for the last uh, month or so, I, I think you'd really enjoy. You might even enjoy talking to him on one of these podcasts. These are two fantastic books on irony and on, on happy endings. I, I think he is carrying on the tradition of, of uh, Victor. Anyway, uh, having gotten excited about the issue of irony, I, I've, I've been looking at various issues about how surface and depth in cinematic presentations. You know, melodramatic stories that seem to be about classic conflict problems in American upper middle class society in the 1950s are also um, deeply critical and pessimistic about the emotional economy that is actually at play in the in the cinema. Um, uh, so uh, I, originally, I was going to talk, uh, call the book the, the Politics of Emotional Life, um, Douglas Sirk and Subversive Melodrama, but I'm going to publish it in a, a series at uh, Bloomsbury um, on philosophy and film that has this kind of standard title, uh, uh, Filmmakers and Philosophy, Douglas Sirk, something like that. But it's a very banal title, but... Um, Anyway, that's uh, that's my latest project on film is a this book on Cirque, and then my next project is a, a book on uh, something I've been very frustrated about in trying to teach students about film, contemplative cinema. I don't know if you've ever tried to teach uh, your students, uh, people like Bresson and Sue mm-hmm. Malik um, mm-hmm. and uh, some Opals. Uh, 
sometimes it's characterized as slow cinema. Mm-hmm. And I would really like to offer a full-throated defense of contemplative cinema, especially Bresson. Um, so if the fates are kind and I stay here on the farm, I, I better even go back to Chicago in the fall. There's, you know, there, in America, there it's very likely that there's just going to be online teaching in the fall, which is something I just loathe. You ever have to teach a course on Zoom, Bill? No, I haven't. Um, no. Yeah, it's, it's miserable. Yeah. It's just ab- absolutely miserable. Yeah. It, it thins out everything you say. It's airless, dead time. There's a delay. There are technical glitches. It's, uh, just, it, I, I don't, I don't really know if I can do it. But anyway, if I, if I survive and Chicago starts up again effectively before I have to retire, I would like to teach a maybe a two-quarter course on contemplative cinema, concentrating mostly on uh, Bresson and uh, Ozu. Um, that, that would be a project in the future. Well, one possible advantage of that format is it might be possible for um, people in other countries, such as myself, to sit in in some way, because I would certainly enjoy that. Um, yeah, that's, you, know, you know, that is the great advantage. I, I had a colleague from Germany whom we have visit the Committee on Social Thought every year, and he taught... Um, on Zoom, so he was very reluctant. I had to talk him into doing it in the spring quarter. Um, and he had people from Japan, China, mm. you know, they, they would write and ask him for the Zoom address, and he would give it to them. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's an extraordinary opportunity for people to participate in a course how, at however reduced a level of intensity that these online... I mean, you basically looking at a computer screen with 40 driver's license photos on it. Yep. <laughs> it's, it is not a human interaction. Um, but nevertheless, you're absolutely right. It has this tremendous advantage of allowing people from all over the world to participate in a course they would never have a, ch- a chance to listen to. Yes, and I'm, I've been very, very grateful my, for my chance to discuss your work today and yesterday i'm just mentioning closing that we have had technical difficulties and we've had to uh conduct this interview over a few days um and the sound quality may not always be perfect but i think the level of of your discussion has certainly has been and thank you very much robert pippen thank you